morning to the new live class. Glad you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. That's the theme verse of Martin Luther's life. We'll get to that. But first, I want to tell you the story of Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther's life is like any Christian. It has a before Christ, a coming to Christ, and the life that is changed after you uh, have a relationship with Christ. The typical three-minute testimony, that's what we're going to look at. It's going to take more than three minutes, though. And we're going to look at today what happened before he came to Christ and how he came to Christ. And then next week, we'll look at the difference in the transformation that it made in his life. The story of Martin Luther shows the significance of the five solas and summarizes the Reformation. If you want to, in a sense, get a handle on the Reformation, all you got to do is look at the biography of Martin Luther. And it's a wonderful story because it combines history, biography, and theology all together. It doesn't give the solas their significance. It does, though, put them in a historical context and shows how the Reformation bridged the gap between biblical learning and radical living. And so last week we looked kind of overview of the Reformation, and we saw that the Reformation is a time when a monk with a mallet unknowingly unleashes the Reformation. And that was October 31, 504 years ago. And it was truly a Halloween that changed the world. And when you think about what the Reformation is, just by way of a little review and just capture again, when you think about the Reformation, you want to think about the definition, the motivate, the question, and the motivation for the Reformation. So you see in your notes the definition that we looked at last week. It's a pivotal movement, lasted from 1517, that Halloween when Luther nailed the 95 Thesis, to 1545, which is when the counter-Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church sought to tamp down and effectively did. In fact, after 1545, only one nation converted to Protestantism, and that was Holland. And so those are the dates of this movement where God used, that God used to bring his people back, back to the Bible. That's what I want you to think about when you think. Back to the Bible in order to shine the light of the gospel in the dark ages. And so that's what happens. When you go back to the Bible and you study it, with an intent to see what God is saying, it will let light shine into the darkness. It was an attempt by it was an attempt to bring the Roman Catholic Church back in line with the New Testament. But instead, it resulted in the formation of Protestant state churches. Germany, Protestant state church, France, Protestant state church, England, Protestant state church that fluctuated a lot. So they brought the state churches more in line with the New Testament, but what they failed to do, they still had some ways to go to come back fully to a New Testament local church. 
And so that's kind of the difference between Protestant reformers and radical reformers. If you look there in your notes, the Protestant reformers were Roman Catholics that protested by seeking to reform the Roman Catholic Church, but ended up creating their own state churches. So these Protestant denominations that we know today, they began as Roman Catholics that intended to remain Roman Catholics, but were rejected by the Roman Catholic Church. And so you have Lutherans who were the followers of Luther, and they spread from Germany. You have the Reformed or the Presbyterians who were followers of Calvin, and they spread from Switzerland, France, Scotland, nations like that. And then you have Anglicans, which was a political reform by King Henry VIII, and that Reformation, if you're going to study the Reformation in England, you've got to study the marriage of King Henry VIII and his six wives. Fascinating story, depending on uh, which wife was in power and, and what would happen there. King Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce. The Pope said no, and he said, hey, Reformation sounds like a great idea. Why? Because I want to divorce my wife. But then uh, he turned against Luther, And because he turned against Luther, the Pope gave him the title, You are now the Defender of the Faith, a title that the Queen of England still holds today. And Prince Charles has said, if if and when I become king, I I will release that title. So history is still playing out today. And Episcopalians, just throwing this in, Uh, And also, Anglicans are basically, and and this is broad strokes, okay? So, uh, and by the way, just in all of this, don't get offended. I've read, I've studied. There's nuances, there's grays in all of this. Uh, I can't go into all that. But basically, Anglicans are Roman Catholics without a pope. And there are some evangelical, actually some very prominent evangelical Anglicans like J.I. Packer, but... Basically, it's Roman Catholicism. And then Episcopalians are Anglicans that came to America. And so uh, American Anglicans are called Episcopalians. More we could say there. But I want you to look at the radical reformers briefly. The radical reformers were reformers that were so radical, they actually practiced believers' baptism and had free churches of only professing believers like in the New Testament. So because the Protestant churches all had a state church, there was a marriage between church and state, and there was a hierarchy in their church government, and because it was a state church, infant baptism, you were born into the church, of whatever country you were born into and baptized as an infant before you even knew you were a sinner, much less being able to accept the gospel. And so many of these reformers came out of the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because they kept reforming. They kept going back to the Bible saying, but what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about baptism? What does the Bible say about how the church is to be structured? Are we to be uh, accountable to the state? Are we to have a hierarchy of bishops that, and presbyteries that would control the local church? Or is each local church 
independent and accountable and led by pastors and deacons chosen and elected by the congregation. And so those are the differences. And you had two kinds of radical reformers. You had the Anabaptists, and all Anabaptists means is rebaptizers. So the Protestants, the Lutherans, the Luthers, the Calvins, they would look at these people, and they had, these people had looked at the Bible and said, look, we need to be baptized on the right side of salvation. We need to come to faith in Christ, then be baptized. Very good that upstairs we're going to be hearing about baptism today. Okay, that, we're going to hear the biblical teaching on baptism. And the, the baptism of infants just is not in the New Testament. We're under a new covenant, not the old covenant. So anyway, before I digress too far, they would look at these people who were re-baptizing and basically rejecting the state church and the baptism of, them, of themselves as infants, and they would say, you're re-baptizers. And yet, that's really a badge of honor because it's biblical. And then the Baptists came in the 1600s, especially in England, and they were, so here's the difference between the Anabaptists and the Baptists. The Anabaptists were fuzzy and very subjective and looked at the light of the, of, of the, the subjective light of the Holy Spirit. So they were very like spirit oriented. And they looked at the reformers and they called them like men of dead letters. They kind of looked at them as the Pharisees. And they said, look, you need to listen to the inner light of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't have to tell you that when you start looking inside, you don't know if it's the Holy Spirit or the pizza you ate last night. And so they got way off on their theology. Whereas the Baptists that came into being, uh, especially in England in the 1600s, they had a reformed theology of the five solas, but they added to that the biblical teaching on baptism and a local church of regenerate, regenerate, converted people. And so that's really the difference. So basically, I gave you a chart kind of letting you look at this. I won't go any farther over it, but you can take a look at it and kind of see the progression. And what I like to call about the radical reformers were so radical that they kept reforming even though it went against their culture and their history. Basically, 1,200 years of history. They, they moved against 1,200 years of history. They kept reforming the Reformation. But what is the question that drove the Reformation and drove the life of Martin Luther? It's this. The question is, what must I do to be saved? And who has the authority to tell me? What must I do to be saved? And who has the authority to tell me? Is it the Pope? Is it a priest? Is it a monk? Is it the king, the leader of my nation? What must I do to be saved? And who has the authority? And folks, I'm telling you, it's a, it's a question that is found in the New Testament in the birth of the church at Philippi, the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? It's a question that is in the hearts of the people you are working with, living with, and living next to. All around you, people are asking. Sometimes it's deep within. I was asking this question for 17 years, but I couldn't formulate it. I didn't understand, what, I, but I was searching. 
I was seeking, and I was lost in the darkness. And so what was the motivation of the Reformation? The motivation in God's divine providence and grace was a monk by the name of Martin Luther to whom God graciously revealed his answers, his answers to that question. God graciously, through an open Bible as we're going to see, God graciously spoke into the heart of Martin Luther by his spirit and by his word to give God's answer to that question. So let's look at a monk seeking the light of salvation at the end of the dark ages. He's very typical. He's got exceptional gifts, but his story is typical of that age. And I would put forth to you, we still have people seeking light surrounded by darkness. Okay, so let's take a look at it. It begins, his life begins uh, under, uh, we're going to look at two aspects of his life. Before he came to Christ, he was a student lawyer who encounters death. He encounters death. And to put this into cultural perspective, we live in a technological age where we assume we're going to live, Not it used to be 70, 80 Ah, Gwen was going to go, what, a 97-year-old? Going to go to a 97-year-old party up in, in, in Ohio. And, you know, we don't, we're not shocked at that. And even cancer, you know, cancer is, cancer is no longer an automatic death sentence. But listen, when you lived in the Middle Ages, death was real. Death stalked you. Death was around you. And death was a reality that you saw all the time. And so he encounters death, and that brings up the question in his life, where am I going to go when I die? Where am I going to go when I die? So let's look at it. He was born on November 10th, 1483, to peasant parents in the little town of Eisleben. And Eisleben is about 120 miles southwest of Berlin. So it's right there in Germany. He, Luther liked to say, I'm the son of a peasant and the grandson and the great-grandson of a peasant. So he came from a long line of poor people. Luther always had the heart and the ear of the common man because he was a common man, even though God gave him some exceptional gifts. He was raised in a religious home that was both strict and superstitious. Remember, it's the dark ages, okay? The Bible is closed, it's chained, it's people are ignorant, it's in a different language. They're ignorant of the word of God, the common man. As a child, uh, Luther was influenced by a form of religion in which one had to work for future salvation just as one had to work for daily survival. So your life was just this constant effort to survive. And so working for survival was matched by working for your salvation. Luther studied law. And the reason he studied law is not because he wanted to become a lawyer. It was because his dad wanted him. His dad, I think, uh, saw the gifting in Luther, the the intellect, the ability. And he said, son, I want you to become a lawyer. a lawyer instead of a coal miner like me. I want you to better yourself, but he's probably thinking too, hey, lawyers make more money than miners, and I'm getting up in years, and just like today, 
you know, I want my kid to take care of me. And so Luther honored his father's wishes, and he earned both his bachelor's and master's degree in the shortest time possible. So he's a common guy, but he's very astute and very uh, uh, able to study. Here's the key thing of the first 19, 20 years of his life. Luther almost died at the age of 19, and he never saw a Bible, never saw a Bible until he was 20 years old. This is a guy living in darkness. He was walking on his way home back to law school. He had gone, uh, taken a break. He was going, he was on his way home from law school and taking a break, and he, he carried a dagger in his pocket, you know, for protection, and somehow that dagger stabbed, he stabbed himself in his leg, and he cut an artery, and basically he was bleeding out on the roadside. And um, only because he was with a friend who ran and got him a doctor was, did Luther even survive. Otherwise, he would have been entered into a Christless eternity. He was lying at the edge of the road till the doctor came, and he cried out to the mother of Jesus. Remember, he, all he has is Catholic doctrine. He cries out to the mother of Jesus, Oh, Mary, help me. This won't be the last time that Luther cries to the saints to save him from his fear of death. But what raises in his question, and in God's good grace, the doctor comes in time. Not because he cried to Mary, but because God is a gracious God who desires all men and women to be saved. But foremost in his mind is now, where will I go when I die? But this near-death experience raised another question that began to gnaw at Luther's heart and his conscience. And the question is this, the question that every human being hopefully will ask before they die, what must I do to be saved? And so the second half of his life before he came to Christ, for 12 years, a serious monk seeks light in the darkness. A serious, sincere, guilt-ridden monk seeks light in the darkness. He begins a quest to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? And basically what he does, and this is, it's a beautiful story that's a tragic story because he takes Roman Catholicism at their word and he says, here's your answer. I'm going to try it. Here's your answer. I'm going to try it. And he keeps trying it. And he keeps working and working and working climbing the ladder up to heaven according to Roman Catholicism. So here it is, the rest of his life, summarized. What must I do to be saved? Well, the first thing is become a monk. How about become a monk? In other words, get more spiritual by sacrificing, by making personal sacrifices to set yourself apart more and more to God and more and more from your sin. Here's how it happened. In 1505, in 1505, so 20, he's 21, 22, he's nearly struck dead by lightning during a thunderstorm. And he promises St. Anne he will become a monk if she saves him from death. So you've heard of foxhole religion. This is what he's doing. He's saying, you know, he's like, whoa, God's after me. I just, I merely died by a thunderbolt. 
uh, St. Anne, if you save me, I will become a monk. And this is an a, uh, actual uh, drawing of Luther as a monk and uh, by his friend uh, who was an artist at that time. This brush with death causes Luther to begin to ask and try to answer this ultimate question at 21 years of old. What must I do to be saved? Here's what happened. While walking back to law school, so I guess traveling back and forth from law school is really dangerous, okay? So he's walking back to law school. Luther is struck by lightning in the thunderstorm, and he makes a vow to St. Anne. Now you say, who's St. Anne? Guess what? St. Anne is the patron saint of minors. His dad was a minor. So St. Anne was the influence in their home. Mary, mother of Jesus, St. Anne. And so he cries out to this patron saint of minors, ironically saying, if you as the saint of minors will save me, I will become a monk. Why? Because the people that were really serious about their salvation would separate themselves from the world and become more spiritual by becoming a monk. And here's what he said. Help, help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. And because this man had a sincerity of heart, two weeks later, his, instead of foxhole religion where you go back to life normal after making the vow to God, oh, okay, thanks, you know. He actually, two weeks later, kept his promise and entered the Augustinian order at Erfurt at the age of 21. The Augustinian order was a very serious order. And uh, if you were really going to be spiritual, this was a good place to be. His father had wanted him to become a lawyer, remember? Instead, he becomes a priest, which is kind of the story of many uh, men that go into ministry. And, and when your parents aren't in line on that, here's what his dad said. He saw the thunderstorm less as an act of God and more of a trick of the devil. He's like, that ain't God working in your life. That's the devil getting you off track from a lucrative career as a lawyer. And, and they really didn't reconcile for a long time over this. His father was very disappointed. But was that enough? No. Number two, what must I do to be saved? Become a priest and celebrate Mass. Being a monk wasn't enough, as we're going to see. Maybe I need to celebrate Mass. This is a picture of a great movie of Luther. It's more of a... There's many movies. Hollywood can't, you know, Hollywood can't improve on the life of Martin Luther. And so they've made several life movies. But this is an exceptionally good one. And here's a moment where he's performing Mass. Um, the idea is, if I become a priest, not just a monk, but an actual priest... I will get more serious about becoming spiritual. And we still have this mindset today. People uh, want to draw closer to God and they say, well, instead of being a layman, I'll become a pastor. I'll become a missionary. Then I'll be really a part of the spiritual elite. We need to be careful of that kind of mentality. Uh, many a, a man or woman has gone into ministry under the, the false pretense that then I'll really get spiritual. So in 1507, two years after being a monk, he's ordained as a priest and he gets the privilege of celebrating his first mass. Now, remember, we said that they didn't they withheld the bread 
from communion from the layman and only offered the cup once a year. So to become a priest where you get to handle these sacraments, which according to Catholic doctrine, you would say the magical ritual words and the, the element of bread and wine would literally become the physical blood and body of Christ. Can you imagine the holy privilege of holding the very body and blood of Christ? Luther was so sincere in his quest of being saved He became terrified of the presence of Christ and he holds the cup up and he's shaking and nothing worse than to spill Christ's very blood and his very self onto the ground and he runs in terror from the altar. And by the way, he had invited and his dad had come to see his should-be lawyer son perform mass and can you imagine the disappointment double now Uh, Not only are you not a lawyer, but you're a lousy priest running from the mass. By becoming a priest, Luther could get closer to Jesus and actually be a human mediator between God and people. How much more spiritual could that be? He became a priest in less than two years, and he once commented, and I think I read this last week, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. The full quote is this. I was a good monk, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me well will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. In other words, he would freeze his body. All of these sacrifices in order to show God his sincerity that he might earn God's acceptance. Isn't that tragic? But when you spell salvation do, D-O, instead of done, D-O-N-E, you never know if you've done enough. You never know if you've done enough that is good enough for God. Plus, as we know ourselves and as Luther learned, we can never be good enough to be as good as God because that's the standard. The standard is not grading on a curve. The standard is I must be as righteous as God is. Here's what Luther said. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. Why? Because when you follow work salvation, all you have is a hope-so salvation. You never have. Ask anyone, and this is why this question is still good to ask. I always ask it. If you were to die, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And vast majority of people, not just Roman Catholics, but including Roman Catholics, will answer that question by saying, I hope so. I hope so. Why? Because when you're working, you never know if you're good enough. And there's a conviction by God's grace that you will never be good enough. While I was a monk, Luther says, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation that I cried out, I am lost. I am lost. 
immediately I had a recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. I went every day to confession, but that was of no use to me. Luther entered the monastery to find peace with God. And though driven there for the rest of his for the rest in his soul, monastic life failed to ease his guilt. Here's what he said. Then, bowed down by sorrow, I tortured myself by the multitude of my thoughts. Look, I exclaimed. Look, thou art still envious, impatient, passionate. It profiteth thee nothing. Oh, wretched man, to have entered the sacred order. Why? Because wherever you go, you are there. (laughs) And wherever you are, there is a sinful, depraved heart. External works will never transform the eternal heart of depravity that that we all have. And so, like the Apostle Paul Luther was driven to cry out, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And so I must work harder. Number three, what must I do to be saved? Do more penance. Do more penance. This was the answer. This is the answer of Roman Catholicism and of work salvation. And again, it's not tied just to Roman Catholicism. Uh, You can be a Baptist and believe in work salvation. You just do different works. You knock on doors. You hand out tracts. You consider becoming a missionary or a pastor. You give to faith promise. All for the wrong reason. Why? To earn God's acceptance. And so by doing penance, Luther was thinking, I'm going to get even more serious by being extra sorry for my sins and suffering more. Listen, we are all tempted by this. I'll never forget when I first came here and worked under Pastor Tyrone. There's a lady that came to the church who had been a a longtime member in the past and who had gone through a, a brutal uh, time uh, in, of trials and, and divorce in her family, and she was just wrecked. And she came and she said, I will clean the church. Now, at the time, I was doing that, so I was like shouting hallelujah. But the motivation, I believe, I don't know her heart. By cleaning the church, I'm clean my soul. I'm doing it. So, you know, it, it, this isn't just Roman, you know, like, oh, I'm a Baptist, therefore, or I'm a Lutheran, I'm a Protestant, you know, I'm free of this. No, we can think this idea, if I'll get extra sorry and just do a little more demeaning work and suffer more, then I will be saved. So in 1508, Luther moves from Erfurt, where he was a monk, to the city of Wittenberg, and the new university there, and he earns a Bachelor of Arts in the Bible. But forgiveness of sins and a clear conscience were uppermost in his mind. Everything he's doing right now is driven. What must I do to be saved? And it begins to weigh later on his heart. Here's what Luther said later about this time. If one were to confess his sins in a timely manner he would have to carry a confessor in his pocket. See, why? 
to, to receive forgiveness, you had to go to the priest. And he's like, hey, I'm sinning way too often for me to simply go and schedule a time. I need a confessor in my pocket. Guess what? We need a mediator like that too for our sins. Uh, he had a spiritual mentor there in this monastic order, a Roman Catholic man by the name of Johann von Stoppitz. And he urges him to trust God and study the Bible. Now, this is ironic because in those days, that kind of advice was rare. And you really only could do that had you already become a monk and a priest and now had access to the Bible. Okay, so today we just say, hey, you know, read your Bible. I don't have one. Okay, I've got I'm Bill Bowman. I've got 15 at home. Take one of mine. Right. You know, we're all that way. Right. Or here's my or here's the uh, Bible app and you can have what language do you need? And so he, he he's basically what this uh, Catholic mentor is doing. He sees like his, like Luther's dad, the giftedness in Luther. He sees the sincerity in Luther and he says, you know, Luther. And he also, I think, wants Luther off his back. Go study the Bible. You know, go study. The, and you know what? I give that advice. I, I just recently gave that advice to a young man because here's the thing. You've got to go to God. I can't answer this for you. I can't do, I can disciple you, but in our discipleship, I'm going to drive you to the Bible. Go to the Bible. And because of Luther's sincerity and his guilt and his desire to be saved, he went after it and he was never the same. But, but, Luther found no comfort in the teachings and rituals of the Roman Catholic Church. Here's what he says. Yet my conscience would never give me assurance. But I was always doubting and said, you did not perform that correctly. You were not contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And there's the damnation of work salvation. I'm just, I, I, how much is enough? How much is enough? And we, there, we, even some of you here in this class, I have uh, encouraged and counseled, and you've come and shared that idea, and, and, and I, I point you away from yourself to God and the assurance of the gospel. But he wasn't there yet. Luther later remarked, I was drunk, nay, submerged in the doctrines of the Pope that I could have happily killed or cooperated with anyone who killed, whoever took but a syllable of obedience away from him. He is a devoted Roman Catholic to the Pope, doing everything. And yet the question remains, what must I do to be saved? Number four, well, this isn't working, so what's next? Travel to Rome and worship more relics. Travel to Rome. Hey, maybe... It's where I am. Maybe I need to go to the most spiritual place on the planet, the Disney world of Roman Catholicism. You know, let me go to the ultimate place where the most spiritual people live. And so he goes on pilgrimage to Rome. Now, you got to understand what's the significance of this. Where Luther was studying there at the University of Wittenberg, it was ruled over by a man by the name of Frederick the Wise. He was the leader of this region, and he took pride in a large collection of relics. 
He had over 19,000 holy bones and 5,000 other items of saints that supposedly provided the basis for granting indulgences that would reduce stays in purgatory, that if you took it all in and paid your money, it would reduce purgatory by over 1.9 million years. Now, when you think about the darkness of this age, I mean, like, how long am I going to be in purgatory? Well, you can get it lessened by 1.9 million years. Well, good Lord, how much longer am I going to be in there? Do you see the darkness and the lack of hope that is in this? And so these treasures were made available to believers on All Saints Day, November 1st. And so by viewing the relics and making the required payment, Paying believers could reduce their stay in purgatory while providing much-needed financial support for Frederick's Castle Church and, and support for his university. So basically, it's a religious racket on the backs of guilt-ridden people. The items in Frederick's collection included bones, teeth, hairs, and pieces of cloak, and even, ladies, a girdle from various saints. I find that funny. I'm sorry. They also included a piece of straw, some strands of swaddling clothes from Christ's manger, a chunk of gold by one of the three wise men, a strand from the beard of Jesus, a twig from the burning bush of Moses. Can you imagine that thing being passed down for centuries? Uh, bread served at the Last Supper and seven shreds from the veil sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Listen, by the end of the Middle Ages, so many churches claimed to possess a piece of the true cross that John Calvin famously said to have remarked that there was enough wood in them to fill an entire ship. Okay, because everybody gets, hey, go find me a, go find me a piece of the cross. Okay. What must I do to be saved? Well, Luther says, I'm going to go where the ultimate relics are. I'm going to go to Rome, the capital of Roman Catholicism. And so from 1510 to 1511, he is sent to Rome on business by his monastic order. And he walks from Germany to Rome. And he becomes an eyewitness, you know, walking care. I mean, this wasn't easy. You know, this was a hard work, a hard travel. He became an eyewitness to the hypocrisy and the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and its clergy. He sees the corruption of the church. He sees the luxurious, greedy lifestyle of the Pope and his priests. He sees the numerous relics and sales of indulgences that promised forgiveness. He was going there particularly to alleviate his grandfather of suffering in purgatory. He sees a lack of spiritual commitment among the priests. They have no passion. He sees that Rome is not spiritual enough to answer the question, what must I do? to be saved and he sees in rome which they still are there today and there's people climbing the scala 
sancta, which are the holy stairs, purported to be the marble stairs that Jesus himself climbed up in Jerusalem to go before Pontius Pilate. So, you know, somehow they get these traveling from Jerusalem. You know, all of this is fantastical and beyond our comprehension. And yet when you're clouded in darkness, you buy into it. And so you climbed, and let's see, how many stairs were there? There was 28 marble steps. And for every step, you would repeat the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, 28 times. And by doing so, you would, allevi- you would alleviate this huge number of years in purgatory. So Luther does this on behalf of his grandfather. And as he does it, he reaches the top. And this is the thought. After 28 times of this, the thought enters his head. Who knows if this is true? Who knows if this is true? And it's true, and I'm t- I've been Mexico City. You can go all over the world today, and women are crawling on their knees, bloodied, holding babies. Uh, there are all of the. This isn't just in the past. This is in the present, all around the world. And it's not just Catholicism. It's Buddhism. It's Hinduism. It's work salvation. And so Luther goes there, and he realizes this isn't working. I've got to get back to the Bible. So number five, what must I do to be saved? I'm going to become a Bible scholar. I'm going to become a Bible scholar. I'm going to go all the way. I'm going to get really serious. I'm going to go to seminary, right? Got our seminary student here. I'm going to go to seminary. Been there? You know, do that. And I'm going to study the Bible for the rest of my life. That will finally answer the question. One day in 1511, Luther and his monastic mentor, mentor, this Johann von Stoppitz, sat under a pear tree in a garden near their cloister in Wittenberg. And uh, Stoppitz told the young Luther he should become a professor of theology and preacher. Now remember, the guy's unsaved, right, in his own heart. And Luther was taken aback and he says, it will be the death of me, he objected. And this Stoppitz Uh, had a a sanctified common sense. He says, that's quite all right. God has plenty of work for a clever men like you to do in heaven. In other words, just go, go do this. And Luther does it. In 1511 to 1512, excuse me, he returns to Wittenberg, receives his doctorate of theology and becomes a professor of the Bible. And when he does, he gets the things that come, and part of that is the woolen cap. So when you see Luther in this picture, and it's a, you see him often with that woolen cap, it indicates, I'm a doctor of theology. He took the commission seriously. Of course he does. He takes everything seriously. And it guided his theology and his career as a reformer. Years later, Luther would say, What I began as a doctor, I must truly confess to the end of my life. I cannot keep silent or cease to teach. In other words, unbeknownst, his mentor had unleashed the Bible into Luther's life and heart, and he would be forever changed. Remember what I said last week? Open Bible, open hearts, open doors for the Great Commission. And so what Luther does is he gets hold of the Bible, and he never never looks back. In Luther's heart, three convictions begin to grow, and I have these in your notes, that laid a foundation 
for sola scriptura. And here are the three convictions. Surrender to the Bible as the ultimate standard for truth. He was finally directed not to himself, not to his works, not to his efforts, but to the Bible. Instead of looking at the Bible, the Bible became the standard that judged him and led him to salvation. Secondly, study the Bible in the original languages to know what it truly says. And then thirdly, start teaching in the language of the common man. We always need in the church pastors, scholars, and missionaries who know the original languages, but who then communicate it in the language of the common man. Luther never tired of saying that only experience makes a theologian. I did not learn my theology all at once. No, it took 12 years. But I had to search deeper for it, where my temptations took me. Not understanding, reading, or speculation, but living, nay, dying, and being damned. That's what makes a theologian. Luther was not doing this in an ivory, well, he was doing it in a tower, but he was studying the Bible in this tower in Wittenberg. But he wasn't doing it separated from the needs of his own heart. Are you with me? And he wasn't doing this separated from the needs of the people that he was now a pastor of. And so finally, number six, finally, Luther finds the answer. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is nothing, nothing. It's not what you do. The answer is faith alone in Christ alone for salvation is the only biblical answer. The only biblical answer. He begins to teach the Psalms. He, teach, he teaches Romans. He teaches Galatians. And he teaches Hebrews. You want books of the Bible that would turn you loose for salvation? There are the books. But it was Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, including me, Martin Luther, who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And here's the kicker. He had always seen the righteousness of God as his works actively working. He saw by God's spirit that righteousness is God's righteousness passively given to you. He's done the work, and you have to place your faith in him by his grace. And so he was miraculously saved. And from that time on, Luther began to see, to savor, to study, and to share the five solas of the Reformation. This now, he realized, ah, it's scripture alone, not the Pope, not political rulers. It's Christ alone, not what I do. It's grace alone. I could never have come. I searched for this for 12 years. It was in God's elective grace. It is faith alone. The work has been done. And it's all for the glory of God alone. And I end with this reminder that faith alone saves, but saving faith is never alone. It transforms. This is life transforming. 
And so next week, we will see how this man just didn't get saved to sit, sour, soak, and to remain in his sins. Instead, his life was forever, ever transformed. So I end with this. How does God bring light to people in dark places? He uses those who are truly born again and committed to sharing God's word with all people. And that's going to be the testimony of his life. I tell you again, I don't know if Von Stoppitz is going to be in heaven. I don't know if he understood. Obviously, he didn't see what was going to happen. But he gave Luther the best of all advice. Martin, get into the word of God and let God reveal to your heart. Why? Because the most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man or a common woman with a common Bible in their own language who is committed to an uncommon purpose, and that is getting this good news right here at home and around the world. Amen? Listen, I ask you and I end with this, because I presume nothing. Luther was a... If there's nothing you learn from Luther's life, it's this. Sincerity does not get you saved. He was sincere as sincere could be. He outmonked the monks. He was more godly than the Pope at that time. But he wasn't saved. He had a hope-so salvation. And by the five solas, he went from a hope-so to a no-so. So I just end with this. If you were to die today, if you don't make it up those stairs, if you don't make it home, and we are not promised another minute or another breath, do you know for sure, do you know for sure that you would be in heaven? And if you know for sure, what is your hope based on? Is it Christ? Because he believed, they all believed in Christ, but it was Christ plus my good works. Or is it Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. You can have that. Carmen, I was teaching on Romans 3, and right over there, Carmen had a Martin Luther experience from hope so to no so, and your life's been forever changed. It can happen right here in this classroom, and it can happen for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life and the story of Martin Luther. More more important, we thank you for Jesus and for the Word of God the Spirit of God, and all of that that you have done for our salvation. I thank you for the salvation of Martin. I thank you for the salvation of Carmen. I thank you for my own salvation. I thank you for each one here who has a no-so salvation because you have saved them by grace through faith in Christ alone. And if any is in doubt, it doesn't matter how long you've been saved or how long you've been going to church. It doesn't matter how, uh, how much other people think of you or admire you. Nothing's more important than knowing for sure your own salvation and then sharing that good news with others. We rejoice in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, all God's people said, amen, amen. Good stuff. The rest of the story is next week.